Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is the third installment of the Summer Encore series. Today's episode features Erin Gettler, an author, naturalist, and photographer based on Long Island, New York. When Erin and I recorded this episode, she had recently published her field guide, Butterfly's Backyard Guide, in conjunction with Birdwatcher's Digest. At the time, I hadn't had a chance to preview the book, but I've since read the book and purchased a copy for myself, and I highly recommend adding it to your garden and nature-based library. Erin did an excellent job. A few updates since that episode. Erin mentions that she's about to close on a home at the end of the episode, and she did indeed finalize that, and has been working to remove invasive species and create a wildlife habitat on her property. In addition, she's added a wee naturalist to her family that she is showing the ways and wonders of the natural world to. Erin is hoping to begin working towards a professional certificate in landscape design in the fall, so there may be more botanical developments in her future. Finally, we mentioned Bill Thompson at the beginning of the episode as the person Erin coordinated with in getting this book written. If you're entrenched in the birding community, you'll know that Bill passed away this past March. If you're unfamiliar with him and his work in the birding world, be sure to check the show notes for the episode, and I'll include a few links so you can see his contributions to the birding world. In addition, there will be links to where you can buy Erin's book and where you can find her online. That is located at thegardenpathpodcast.com, and that's where the show notes are and where you can contact me if you have any questions. All right, on to the episode. So thanks for coming back on the podcast. I know last year when you were on, I was you were wrapping up the book, and I was like, hey, come back on next year. And at that point, I didn't know if I was going to do this podcast for another season or not, but here I am. So, Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Um, yeah, so I guess for people who may not listen to the other episode, if you could just introduce yourself and who you are and where you garden. My name is Erin Gettler. I am known on the internet as The Familiar Wilderness, which is the name of my blog and also my handle on all of my social media. I write about natural history and I take photos and I blog and I Instagram. I am also the author of a recently published book called Backyard Butterflies, which is a guide to backyard butterflies. And I garden on Long Island in New York. So your book in the Backyard Butterflies, you were, before you wrote this book, you were already pretty much a big butterfly and moth enthusiast. How did you come into getting on this project? So this project is joining the stable of Birdwatcher's Digest's backyard guides. They are simple, easy to access, beautifully illustrated guides, mostly to birds uh, on a regional note, but they wanted to expand and start including other subjects like butterflies. And uh, Bill Thompson approached me early in the stages of the project and asked if I would be interested in taking on the butterfly guide. And I was pretty stoked on it. It seemed like an exciting opportunity. And um, so he put me in touch with the publisher and it grew from there. So it was pretty much from scratch. Nobody had already built any kind of outline or any guide. Were you having to start everything from yourself? Well, it was, it's based on the template of the other backyard guides. So there is a, a, a format that includes some front material, introductions, how to get started in the, in the field, and then profiles of a bunch of common species. And so when the 
project was proposed to me, it was, there was already a framework, but there was no work done. I had to create all of the content from scratch, took a lot of research. And then on top of that, I had to provide and or source all of the illustrations and photos. Wow. So, I mean, that's a pretty big task. I mean, and this is on top of, I mean, you're working full time and all your other extracurricular activities. So it's a pretty big task. I mean, at least you had the, the bones of the book to work with. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't imagine coming up like, I'm going to make a guidebook and how do I do that? So um, yeah, it was, I had to come up with the list of butterfly species to include, and it's a continental book. So it includes butterflies from Canada and the West of the United States, Southern United States. Yeah. And it was a pretty short turnaround as well. They wanted, they got me on the project in November of 2015 and the book was due in mid-March. Wow. For some reason I thought maybe it was like September, but November. Wow. Holy moly. It, it owned me. It owned my life. Wow. That's crazy. Um, so for the research part, were you going to the library or internet or talking to butterfly experts? How did you go about like narrowing down your list? There was a lot of online resources that I made use of. There's an, there's a bunch of really great uh, crowdsourced kind of databases of butterfly sightings and species profiles, compiling research, kind of like the Wikipedia of birds and moths or entomology. Plus there's an awesome database of uh, caterpillar host plant species, which I made use of a lot. Plus on top of double checking everything uh, against um, journal articles that I could find and guides that have already been written, but distilling information down for a different audience than an expert audience. Um, so I was pulling from everywhere and I wish that I could have made use and contact with experts, but the turnaround time on the project didn't really allow it. And that is one of my regrets. I wish I could have used it as an excuse to get in touch with entomologists and researchers on a professional level. Right. I mean, for sure. I can imagine what kind of fun book that would be. <laughs> yeah. So next time when they want to expand on it, that's what I'll propose. Yeah. So I'm guessing you pretty much stuck with like a word processing, like word document, no fancy word processors. I know there's a lot of writers that use Scrivener. I guess expound upon that a little bit. Was it kind of cumbersome dealing with all of that? I tried to be really clean about how I handled my organization and document hygiene. So each profile had its own document. I used uh, Microsoft Office. So there are some tables that were developed in Excel. There are uh, all of the profiles were written in individual Word documents. That way, nothing could corrupt another document if I lost something. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had big spreadsheets documenting what needed to be done, what should have, what was done already, uh, where I was on different aspects. So it was primarily a, a Microsoft Office organized project. Scrivener didn't really seem to suit the bill for the types of things that I needed to do. Um, right. I do like Scrivener a lot, but I had, I had handwritten notes. I had things everywhere. And if I had had a chance to sit down and get myself organized, I think the next time I learned so much from doing this project, the next time I go into it, I know I would know exactly what I needed to do and I'd be able to set myself up in Scrivener. 
-hmm. but because I was already dealing with a learning curve of organizing all of my information and keeping everything clean, I had to stick with something that I knew like the back of my hand. And that turned out to be Microsoft Word. Right, right. Um, so the photos and the diagrams, was it difficult trying to track down particular butterflies? I mean, I know this oh my is God. common <laughs> butterflies, but getting clear pictures of common butterflies is difficult. So, Yeah, and they had only two stock photography websites that we could use. Oh. And that was fine when it came to swallowtails and monarch butterflies. But then you got into like, there's three different fritillary species in the, in the book and fritillaries kind of, some of them are nearly identical. Mm. So it was a task, not only to source the photos in the first place, but then to make sure that the species in the picture was the species that it belonged to. Right. Um, and then once you get into the less interesting, but very common butterflies, like grass skippers, uh, which are tend to be small and hard to tell apart and not exactly very interesting for photographers. Those ones were the most difficult to source. So it, that required a ton of combing through records and creative keyword searches. Small brown moth is how I got a lot of the skipper pictures. Wow. So you couldn't even, you had to strictly stay with the stock photography. You couldn't, if you found somebody on, you know, iNaturalist or whatever, you couldn't even contract with them. I could have contracted with uh, with people, but it would have been out of my own pocket to pay them to use their. Oh, photos. okay. So <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. The project uh, started in the fall. Originally, they had proposed that I could provide all of the photos. But <laughs> <laughs> I would have been game if they had given me another year. To right. See- to go out with my camera and take the photos that wasn't in the project description. They needed it by March. So that didn't work. I was able to provide a lot of photos, but I would have liked to provide more. (laughs) Wow. That's a task. I can't believe that's crazy. And the time frame. but you seem like it came together pretty, pretty fast. Um, And you said there were drawings too. You had to search. Did you draw those out yourself or did you have to source that too? Oh, I'm sorry. No, there weren't any drawings in there. Oh, okay. Okay. Just photos. Okay. Yep. And so the list, did they come up with a list to begin with or was it all you? That was also all me. And that was, (laughs) that was interesting as well because they wanted, when you deal with butterflies east of the Mississippi, many of them have pretty wide distribution. So a common butterfly east of the Mississippi is probably going to be common in most of the South and up into the Midwest or in the Northeast spreading down toward the Appalachians. So butterflies in the East tend to have a pretty wide distribution and it's easy to come up with a bunch of species that you can find in that area. Mm -hmm. But once you get out West there, the species are, there's a lot more diversity, Mm -hmm. but a lot less coverage. So species might be available or maybe common only in one state. And so that doesn't really meet the criteria of a butterfly that belongs in a a backyard guide from coast to coast. So um, I used a couple of like the equivalent of eBird for butterflies to try to get a good idea of geographic distribution. So hopefully a butterfly that I would include would cut, would be present in a good two thirds or 
quarter of the country so that I could call it a, a widely distributed butterfly. And right. hopefully that would have a lot of records so I could say that it was a common butterfly that more people would be likely to see. Right. And I'm a little less familiar myself personally with butterflies of the West, but um, I, I think I think I did a pretty good job of getting butterflies that people would be likely to find. I hope that people find it useful. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I know for myself, like I'm, you know, here in Houston, kind of at a crossroads of getting Western species and Eastern species. And, and I'm always trying to find out if I can see some particular ones that I liked from Florida. And they usually are like as far as South Texas, unless it's, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, global warming might help that. So, <laughs> um, but um, definitely learning a lot of new ones. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to check out your book. I actually found it um, on one of our library's digital loaner um, oh, really? Services. Yes. And cool. unfortunately I was out of, I was out of credits for this month. So I had to wait till the first of March to, <laughs> to uh-huh. download it. So I was really hoping to like check it out before we talked, but no, that's really cool. Um, that whole process, I guess it was pretty, pretty stressful. Were you excited to be done or? <laughs> <laughs> it was so arduous. I would, I work a full-time job and then I would come home and I for months on end I would spend up to an additional six hours every night working on the book it was pretty much non-stop took over my weekends (laughs) there's uh, in the um well in the acknowledgments I specifically called out my long-suffering husband who made a point of telling me on weekends, you have to go outside. You have to get fresh air. You have to leave the book. It will be here when you get back and you're going to get it done. Um, and this was simultaneously while he's in the middle of completing an MBA. So oh my, our home was a bit of a disaster, but we both survived. And when the book was done, I think I felt such a, a weight off my shoulders. It really took me probably about two weeks to mentally recover and realize that I was free. (laughs) Yeah. So what did you learn, I guess, from the process of writing a book? I mean, this is not necessarily the most, I guess, typical way people go about writing books. Um, Would you learn from that process? And what would you do if you ever wrote something again? I learned a lot about the best ways for me to organize a project. Um, partly by trial and error, but partly realizing what I would have gone back and changed, you know, midway through the process. So the types of things like I would have probably done more pre-writing, I would have tried to, I would have, the next time I approach a project like this, I will have confidence that I can get it done. Right. And I think that will, I intend and expect that that will help me jump in earlier so that I can build more time in at the end to seek more editing and uh, more advice and counseling as I go. Mm -hmm. That I definitely am looking forward to for the next project. The other thing that I learned was that I could do it in a short time frame. And that in itself was a revelation that was like, if you get your butt into the seat and type words, you can make a book. And that I think was, that's the most significant thing that I took out of it. Like I could do this and I could do this again. And the next time I do it, it will be even better. And that was freeing in 
a huge way. So that was exciting. Yeah, I think um, the process of getting started is always the most daunting part. And it's probably why most people procrastinate or delay ever doing, you know, not even just writing, but anything that it's that beginning steps, the the unknown. So, mm-hmm. so what about butterflies? What interesting things did you learn um, oh my goodness. So in that many, process? <laughs> so many cool things. And a lot of things were um, reaffirming stuff that I had already heard, facts and, and details, but every, I would be writing it and I would step away and I would be so excited about this thing that I just told somebody in the future about Um, (laughs) people kept on asking me while I was in the middle of it, do you think you're going to be tired of butterflies by the time you're done? And it was totally not the case because I just kept on getting excited about the things that I was describing and and telling people. One of my favorite things that I relearned was about the life cycle of butterflies called fritillaries. And fritillaries are pretty widespread butterflies. They're bright and big and colorful. They're orange and they usually have these really flashy white spots on the undersides of their wings. Mm -hmm. They have this really, I thought, unusual life cycle. They overwinter. Well, let me take a step back. In the early spring, male fritillaries appear and they stake out territories that they'll defend against other male fritillaries and they'll seek and wait for the female fritillaries to show up. The female fritillaries show up on the scene a couple of weeks after the males have already been defending territories and getting all beaten up and looking battered (laughs) and terrible. And then here are these wonderful, beautiful, fresh female fritillaries and they do their fritillary thing and they mate and then all of the males die. Oh, the female fritillaries will go into diapause, which means that they pause their basic their whole life. Mm-hmm. and wait out the dry spell through the summer. And then they become active again at the end of the summer. They'll feed and then they find host plants for their caterpillars. And the caterpillars exclusively feed on members of the viola family. So that's violets and pansies and things like that. And the females will lay their eggs, not on, but near these violet family members. Hmm. And then the females go off and die and the eggs will hatch and the caterpillars will not take a single bite. They will immediately go into another diapause. They shut down their metabolism. They just freeze over winter in leaf litter next to their food plants. They spend the whole winter in this suspended animation as caterpillars that have just hatched and have never had a single bite in their whole entire lives. Huh. And then in the spring, everything thaws, the violets start growing back, and the fritillary caterpillars wake up. And their first meal is after they've spent the winter next to their food plant, they eat the violets through the spring flush and then pupate for a couple of weeks. And start the whole cycle over again in early midsummer. Wow. And reproductive suspension and diapause and um, different overwintering strategies are every butterfly has a different kind of re- overwintering strategy. They'll either overwinter as an egg or um, a pupa or an adult. The fritillaries are so unusual in that they never take a bite before. 
they hibernate. <laughs> and I thought that was so fascinating. And then another one that I thought was really, really interesting is certain butterflies in, they're called hair streaks. And they're kind of small little butterflies. They're typically blue or, or gray on top, but they have um, usually white or orange blushed undersides of their wings. And they have these two thin hairs or whiskers on the back end of their hind wings as adults. Mm -hmm. And um, they'll kind of move those hind wings so that those hairs look like antenna so that if a, a bird swings by and thinks that it's going to have a meal of this butterfly, it'll take a chomp out of the hind wings instead of biting off the butterfly's head. Mm -hmm. the butterfly will live to fly another day. But there are a couple species among the hair streaks that when they are caterpillars, they have um, symbiotic relationships with ants where the caterpillars will feed on usually flower buds or tender green leaves, places where ants are likely to hang out, and they'll secrete honeydew, which is like a very sweet liquid, mm -hmm. to get the ants to take care of them. This is a strategy that aphids also have. Mm -hmm. They basically, their, their excrement is ant food. Right. And the ants love this and end up taking extra care of their honeydew excretors. So these caterpillars have this relationship with ants where they feed the ant and then the ants are more likely to defend the caterpillar if, for example, um, a parasitic wasp comes by and tries to, to eat the caterpillar or, um, or implant eggs into the caterpillar. Right. So these little squishy caterpillars are exploiting these ants' defense with something that they're already making, which is honeydew. That is cool. I mean, how did you, ha I mean, distilling that kind of information, how much were you able to condense into, distill this into like a paragraph or did you, were you able to expound upon this for a couple pages? Uh, this was typically uh, distilled into about a little paragraph. Um, I had to be picky because some butterfly species have more than one amazing, fascinating fact about right. themselves. And I had total of about 450 words that I could spend on each butterfly. And a lot of that was dedicated to describing the butterfly, how you could tell this particular butterfly from another butterfly, where you could find it, when it was visible, uh, the types of things you could plant in a garden to attract the butterfly or where you could go to find it. So there were there was a lot of words that were already devoted to important information that was kind of required for each profile. Mm -hmm. And so I had fewer words that I could spare on the interesting things. So in the descriptions of the life cycle or um, whenever I was able to squeeze in those interesting factoids, I definitely, I, I picked and chose the types of things that would be, I thought most interesting to people. Right. So with that, I remember you posting, you had submitted your manuscript and then, I don't know, a month later you get edits back and you were mm -hmm. kind of miffed about having to cut stuff. How did you handle, I guess, editing and what, what needed to be cut, I guess? I, in the end, I was pretty relieved that I was able to go back and take another pass through it. Um, originally, the, the editor had told me that I would have 550 words <sighs> to spend on each profile 
And I have to say that for some butterflies, there's just not 550 words of information available. So uh, I was, in the end, I was pretty relieved to have to go through and slice and condense so that the best stuff was left and the most important things were left so that um, somebody could open up to a butterfly and get a nice, healthy helping of interesting information about that butterfly without too much fluff. So there was, it was pretty easy to go through and slice out and compress flowery descriptions and uh, things like that. Right. And I think Um, any writer is eventually excited to be able to go back with a scalpel and clarify things in their own writing. Well, at least with that, it doesn't seem like you have to deal with, you know, past tense or, Tense issues. Yeah. <laughs> my problem. Why did I write this way? And three chapters later, I'm writing a different way. Hold on. Right. We did. I was did have a copy editor who took a spin through it, and that was nice as well. But um, in the end, going through and and cleaning up everything, having another chance to take a pass through it, I was pretty pretty thrilled for that. So the final book publishing process, like in the months after you've turned it in, you've done the edits. I guess what what happened after that, and and I mean, the book has been really released. Tell me everything about the final parts of putting this book together. So after I submitted the manuscript, there was a little bit of back and forth about things like this photo isn't going to work. Can you find another one? The graphic designer would like to do this. Is that okay? And a few months later, I got a PDF back that I was able to go through and um, make sure that everything was correct, that the right photo went with the right profile. I had a couple of quick changes that I thought would improve the book. And then it just kind of disappeared. It <laughs> Back in December, one of my friends tweeted me and said, oh, hey, um, Amazon says that my pre-order of your book is shipping. And I said, wait, what? I don't even have my book. <laughs> so uh, a lot of things happened behind the scenes that I wasn't aware of. Um, Wow. Including pushing up the publication date. It was published in China. And as soon as it was done, it went on a boat and was distributed among bookstores in the U.S. So it wasn't like a big, highly anticipated release where it's not available until this day. Right. It was available with a marketing person who is developing a marketing plan for the book that will probably include hopefully some articles being placed in magazines. And I'm working locally to do some talks on Long Island about butterflies and gardening and how to find butterflies and maybe doing some walks and things like that. Yeah. So there was, there was a lot of mystery when it, after I finally submitted everything, but now there's really and truly a book that I can hold and look at and I don't read it because I, <laughs> I don't want to think of all of the things I would have done differently. Right. But people and tell me it's great. <laughs> the uh, the marketing thing I would touch on for a second, because you were approached and this was already kind of something they wanted to do, did the publisher have a marketing platform for you or did you have to kind of build that in yourself? So I'm, I'm building that myself, basically. Okay. Uh, there, one of the things that they asked me to provide early on was a list of uh, contacts that I knew in the natural history world of people who might be interested in reviewing the book. So they've received copies of it. Hopefully they'll review it on their own social media and talk about it and share the wealth. 
there's not really, I'm not going to be going on tour and promoting this book or anything like that, but they are trying to place it in locations where it would be accessible to people who might be interested. So right. one of the distribution outlets is Home Depot, which oh. is suppose, what they're trying to do outdoor gardening, how to book, book stuff. So it should be available there. Birdwatcher's Digest is, is promoting it and you know, a few different other outlets, but a lot of it is on me, uh, me talking to my friends and sharing the book and doing talks and things like that, which are going to be ramping up, you know, now that spring is coming, you can't really do a talk about butterflies in the middle of winter. Right, right, for sure. Um, Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking that would happen with your marketing, but I thought maybe you, because you're approached differently, that it would be a little different. But yeah, that's what I've learned from, you know, working on my own book proposals and things like that, that you're the marketer these days. So yeah, pretty much. Cool. So I guess, do you, do you want to write another book in the future or are you? Oh, good? absolutely. I don't know. This book was a lot of fun because the whole time I was writing it, I was imagining who would be picking it up. And I would get so excited when I would think somebody's going to be looking at this book with their, their kindergartner or their third grader and then they're going to go out and they're going to see a butterfly in real life and they're going to make a connection because of this book that I put together. It was hard work and I think my writing style runs a little bit more to the flowery and maybe it's not in best service of a field guide. Right. What I'm hoping to do more of is children's nonfiction and with that in mind, I'm doing some professional development this year. Um, I've got a couple of drafts of, I, well, ideas and drafts of books that I'm hoping to work on and, and start submitting to agents. And, you know, the, the three-year plan is to hopefully get an agent and have a couple of books ready to be presented to possible publishers. That's awesome. I'm excited for you. That's cool. Thank you. So you were able to garden last year after you got your book done. How did your school garden go? Last year, I right after the book was done, we started having our first annual meetings. I, I last year gardened at a community garden, and it's a school community garden situated right outside of the local middle school. And right after the book was completed, the leader of the garden said, one of our goals for this year is to do a pollinator garden. And I said, I will do it. <laughs> Let me do it. Uh, so I... I ended up with probably about 100 square feet that I was able to devote to native Long Island plants. And I had a budget, so I was able to buy all of these plants from a, a local native plant organization. And uh, I also had a veggie plot that was completely neglected <laughs> all summer long because I was so into the, the native plants in the border bed. Plus, I also ended up raising 50 monarch caterpillars. So that that. took up most of my summer and not so much vegetables. But that garden just had my heart all summer long. I would go and just walk around and pet the plants. And I was so thrilled to see how it grew in and how so many people were loving it and admiring it. And they would ask me, what kind of plant is this? And can I grow it in my yard? And what kind of a plant is this? And where do I find it? And all of these awesome connections that I was able to make because of this bed that I was usually petting and weeding <laughs> and all, all summer long. Um, yeah. So that was a fantastic experience. And 
before uh, before spring gets going, I need to get in there and get it all cleaned up so that it can have another good growing season. But this year I have a new gardening adventure. All right. And Share a little about it if you can. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be closing on house purchase, relocating, and I will have um, a third acre yard that oh, I will wow. get to garden to my heart's content. I am so excited. Wow. That's a big piece of property too. <laughs> yeah. <Nice. laughs> I was hoping for a half an acre, but I couldn't find any. Yeah. Wow. And is it a blank slate? Do you get to just go in and do whatever you want? Or do you have the little perimeter beds around the house kind of thing? So there is some very basic kind of foundation plantings. And and, um, the previous owner is an elderly retiree who you can see the bones of what had been there. That there are certain things where you can tell somebody, whoever chose this or left this, really was into plants and loved what they had. But right now, it is pretty close to a blank slate. There are, I last, well, I first saw the property uh, last fall after everything had kind of, all of the leaves were gone. So there are a lot of shrubs and things that I don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. There's a couple that I recognize. So those are going to, I have my list already of things that I know I'm probably going to replace. Mm-hmm. Or excavate like the giant bed of Pacassandra that I'm that I loathe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but a lot of it is lawn. So I am really looking forward to installing some raised vegetable beds and getting this year will probably if I can tamp down my ambitions. Yeah. Um, I should spend this year paying attention to light and shade and um, drainage and things like that. But I mean, who are we kidding? I'm probably going to go on a plant buying spree and <laughs> get in way over my head. I've already drawn blueprints of where things should go and what's going to be moved and what's going to be chopped. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but I, my husband keeps on, or no, actually my in-laws keep on saying, oh gosh, that's such a big yard. What are you going to do with that? It's going to be so overwhelming. And I keep on saying, I've been dreaming of this since I was 12 and landscaping my own parents' yard. Yeah. I am completely ready for this. I think because uh, my, my dad's kind of in that same way. We're, we have a little over an acre and he's he's like, oh, man, the less yard I have, the less this. I think he's just at that age where he's already put in his time and he's done. So I think. I can understand where they're coming from, but I'm like you, I'm like, I was even thinking we've had our beds put in for, you know, about four years now and starting to look at a couple other places in the yard. I'm like, "Mm, we could do something here. And the area up front that likes to flood a lot, that pond a lot, that could be a wetland area. There you go. (laughs) So, um, and I think the other thing is that old school landscaping and yard work, had always been so heavy maintenance, you know, people would grow things that didn't really want to be growing there. Yeah. Or you'd have a specimen planting in a giant bare area and you had to replace the mulch every year. Mm -hmm. And currently I don't have this yard yet, but um, my, my way of gardening has always been to try to grow in an area that is pretty self-sustaining and doesn't need a ton of tending and when you have a good, mature, well-balanced planting, there's less weeding and things like that. So 
the goal is to end up with things that are a little more self-sustaining that I can mostly walk around and pet and not things that need like four times annual fertilizer and, right. and rambunctious ground covers that need to be hand pulled. Otherwise they'll invade everything. Right. That's the goal. We'll see what the actual practice will be. <laughs> well, I'm excited for you for both your house and for the book. Um, and as soon as I can check it out, I'm definitely going to um, flip through it and see, see what you've got for my region and learn some more things about butterflies that I might not know. So I'm looking forward to hearing how you like it. Yeah, for sure. Do you think you'll be blogging again soon or you just yes. sticking? So um, my blog is The Familiar Wilderness, and I just did a website revamp over the winter in preparation both for the book and for hopefully some renewed blogging. I'm ho- I'm expecting to, now that I have a new subject, I had kind of gotten bored with what I had been writing about before, but um, now I have a new subject, which is suburban gardening and landscaping with the intent of improving for pollinators and, and providing native plants. Um, so I'm going to be documenting that on the blog as well as a bunch of new parks and new to me areas that I'm hopefully going to be exploring it because I'm moving across the Island to another area. We'll hopefully have a lot more material and um, hoping people want to follow along. Yeah, I definitely am. So, well, thanks again for coming on and uh, I will be checking out your blog and hoping for updates soon. So yeah, stay tuned probably in starting in April. All right. Well, have a good evening and thanks. Thanks again. You too. Have a good one. All right. Bye. Bye.